Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Today we are joined by two very special guests. These two athletes have represented the U.S. at Worlds and are doing a lot of very cool things with their dogs. Brad and Sarah Cassing, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Hello, thank you. So let's get started by talking a little bit about what you guys have been doing the last year, because despite COVID, it seems like you guys have been able to safely get out on some adventures and you even hosted your first race this year. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you guys have been engaged in over the last year? Uh, yeah, with, with the last year, um, one big thing for us is, is our move. We've, uh, we, we've been into, into these sports for a while um, and we've kind of realized that we're wanting to go to the next level, which is probably going to require some more dogs. So we've been, uh, we've moved up to Flagstaff where we can do more year round training, got some property where we can actually uh, set up some kennels. Uh, and so that's, that's been, been a lot of it, but yeah, we've been able to, to do quite a bit of, of training. Uh, and we almost didn't hold our first Arizona race this year uh, yeah. because of, uh, because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but you know, we thought, we thought we could do it in, in a safe way. Uh, it, it was fantastic. We we had way more people show up than than even my my best my, my best hopes. Yeah, and that's you know what I'm continuing with now is you know I'm more involved in the Rocky Mountain Sled Dog Club or wanting to put on more dry land in uh, in Colorado as well, especially coming into the spring. And you guys have been competing quite a bit this year as well in several events. Talk to us yeah. about what each of you have done. Yeah, so no, so we were able to compete in two dryland races. Um, the one that we that we hosted in, in Flagstaff. So the one that we hosted is at the Arizona Nordic Village, and so it's a ski a Nordic ski center that the trails were, were perfect for for dryland, and um, we were able to do so. It, being that these races are outside, and being that you have the the time starts, makes it really easy to maintain the the distance required to to be safe still. And then, um, but no, and anytime we were in close proximity or anything, masks were, were required. So the, I think the tricky part was uh, travel logistics for some of the competitors, just trying to get to the site safely was, was the tricky part. But that was our first race. And then we did decide to uh, venture out to a race in Ohio this year. So it was our first time actually competing um, among the Midwest crowd, which is just a blast. It was a lot of fun. What made travel there easy was we, we have a camper van with a kennel set up. And so we basically just kind of load everything we need. And so we don't really need to go in any buildings or anything. So we're able to just kind of maybe stop for gas along the way and not much else. So, so that made, made it really easy there. But that was a fantastic race. And it was really, a really fun to actually meet new people, many that we've only gotten to know virtually through, through social media. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you guys always been involved in these sports or how did you guys get started? Uh, no. Um, so, so both of us, we, we were um, both athlete, athletes in, in sports uh, before this. I was, I was into mountain biking. Um, I kind of fallen out of it a bit. I started having some arthritis problems and that, but, you know, always kind of felt I was a racer at heart that I just couldn't race anymore. Yeah. So no, my background. So I'm uh, running was was always my thing, and I would I would take along with him on the mountain bikes and, and play that way. Uh, but we're both really outdoorsy into um, like hiking, backpacking, and then of course trail running for me, mountain biking for him. Um, but my background is actually I'm originally from Minnesota, where the sled dog scene is much bigger, and mm -hmm. I was fairly familiar with with the distance racing. And at the time, um, this was back in 2017. Um, our two dogs were getting a bit older at the time, and so. We're looking for our next adventure athlete, our, our next canine, canine companion to kind of join us. And just knowing like how um, physically amazing sled dogs are, we decided to kind of look into that direction. Well, you, you, you did. I, I really didn't yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, she didn't know it. any of this. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, you're, you're, you're the vet and I, I you know, defer yeah. to you. You know, we, our dogs, you know, they, they joined us and we did, you yeah. know, backpacking and we do rappelling with them and big hikes and swimming. And so we thought, we thought, our, or I thought, um, my dog was uh, about as athletic as you could get. I was so proud of all the things uh, that that she could she could do, and so I really failed to. I mean, I'd never really been around the, these dogs, so I really didn't appreciate just physically how different mm -hmm. they they really are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they opened opened your eyes to a whole new level of, yeah. of well, activity. I, again, I'm sure. 
Yeah, Sarah told me about bike joring, and I didn't take it seriously. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was like, dogs can't keep up with with a fast mountain biker. I'm like, yeah, if, you, <laughs> if we're going for a leisurely mountain bike ride, yeah, yeah, you know, a, a fit dog can keep up. And again, like I, I went pretty far with biking. I thought I knew a lot about dogs. I, I was nowhere close to to my understanding of what, uh, you know, what these purpose bred dogs could could really yeah. do. No, and I'll be honest, even for myself, like I didn't, re I was still pretty new to the sprint world. Um, again, it's mostly the the distance, um, the, the Alaskan Huskies and the, the distance mm -hmm. teams that I was familiar with. Um, but we ended up um, going back and visiting my family back in Minnesota over Easter that year. And we just started talking with the kennel and he happened to be, uh, I guess, a highly elite sprint racing kennel. And he had two litters on the ground and we're like, well, we're interested. And it's like, great. And so we ended up with one and that was Lyra. And just as a, we had no intention of doing any of this. Like she was going to be our adventure dog. Yeah, it was just, it was an off leash biking buddy, yeah. a backpacking friend, yeah. just, you know, a dog that would be able to go as far as any dog could. That right, was, right. that was, that was all that was on my mind when we got our first sled dog. Yep. And then I started kind of crossing with her as a, as a puppy and she was just phenomenal. I was like, okay, this, we've got potential here. Yeah. And so then that opened my eyes where even I wasn't as familiar with the sprint world. And so I started looking more into it and realized like, okay, these are highly elite competitive sports in and of themselves, and we can do this. And it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, we, yeah, we, we started bike touring a bit, and yeah. that it was my very first time out bike touring. I was like, this is different. Yeah, this is not, uh, this yeah. is not uh, biking with a dog on a leash. Yeah, right. um, you know, the, the, what these dogs could do. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we were just hooked. We were, yeah. we were hooked right there. Yeah. And how old is Lyra now? She'll be four at the end Coming of the Coming up with four. So yeah. And, uh, and, and then that's how we ended up getting into, into sledding it is we, we went back for, for a second dog. We tried going with a, with an older dog. Um, you know, she was young and I'm like, I want to do this now. I want to start racing now. I was so impatient, um, to really get into racing really quickly that we're like, let's just buy, you know, a, a two-year-old lead dog, something that I can just start, start racing with now. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we tried a few other older dogs, um, and in our experience, the, the older dogs, they do it, but they didn't quite take to it the, the right. same way. Yeah. So we, we ended up going back for, for Lyra's sister. We're like, okay, mm -hmm. we know Lyra's sister is, yeah. is good. Um, and again, I'm, I'm so happy we went with a, a respected kennel that lets you, you know, take yeah. back dogs and, and find the right one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, kind of how serious, how serious were we when we, made the offer for the third dog. Not I, terribly. <laughs> I, I think it was, it was kind of along the lines of, oh, and can you throw a third one in for the deal? Yeah. And yes, and now we had three dogs. Yeah. Um, so, slippery uh, slope. <laughs> you get started, oh, yeah. you get one dog, and you just keep acquiring more dogs and more equipment. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what happened. And then I think it was, because we got to, because um, we kind of reached out to the, it's a, Arizona does have a, a machine community. And so we kind of mm -hmm. reached out to the few that were that were active in it. And one was like, hey, I've got a friend who's getting out of it. They're selling a sled. And he decided to buy the sled. And that's this, I was, when that yeah. started. I, this so. was None of this was supposed yeah, to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's someone selling a sled for a couple hundred dollars. I've got three sled dogs. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, then I show up to my first race. I think I have maybe 30 minutes of experience on a sled, maybe 40 minutes of experience on a sled <laughs> for my first race. Uh, and I end up getting the fastest lap time in the four dog class. I'm like, well, I guess I race dog sleds now. This, yeah. No, I guess this is my new hobby. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I say that like, you know, like about taking it seriously. Like it's, it's fun. It's, this is more fun than I've had yeah. ever in anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see any of this coming. Unexpected journey. Yes. It is. Yeah. Now I know Sarah, you, when you were in Minnesota, you did go to the veterinary school there. Was yes. that always the plan? Um, kind of, sort of. So, okay. so yeah. So growing up, um, again, I actually wanted to be a paleontologist when I was five. So that was the, the first thing I wanted to be. And uh, again, I've always enjoyed the dogs that I had growing up and, and, and sled dogs I've always been really fascinated by. And then just kind of, I don't know, this, Many of us will say that it's always like interest in animals, but then it's really the math and science and the medicine that draws them to it. So that was the bigger draw, and it's it, yeah, and it's just kind of that that blend of being able to to work in that avenue that kind of drew me to it. So it wasn't necessarily always the plan. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, 
actually purposely took a year off between undergrad and vet school and ended up working as a fisheries biologist for a little while because I was really interested in wildlife and thought about going that direction, but decided to, to see what would happen and, and here I am. So now, so since I did general practice for a year and a half and then I switched to emergency medicine. You, you've always kind of stayed in a little bit in the sled dog world. Yeah, yep, exactly. So, yep, so I started volunteering for sled dog races during undergrad and then continued through through vet school. Um, a few local races in Minnesota and then the, the John Baird race, uh, which is the longest race in the lower 48. And then, yeah. um, so I did that through vet school then moved out west, took it and then started missing it and then started going back to that in 2016. And then I've gone back uh, to be one of the race veterinarians for that event each year since. So. Yeah, and I saw that you, you guys back last week, right? Yep. yep, it just finished, so it's just last yeah. weekend. There you go. When you yeah. go to races like this, what does your work entail? Yep. So essentially, most of these races they require a pre-veterinary uh, pre-race exams. So we go there either um, it's usually the day before, where every every um, every dog in the race needs a full physical exam, where we check them over, we get their vitals, making sure they're fit to compete. Um, and then um, some races, like the Iditarod, they actually need to go through a, a full workup. Where they actually will do AKGs, a, a full blood work, a full more extensive work. I didn't realize it was that mm -hmm. that yep. extensive for for the Iditarod and Yukon Quest. Uh, but most races, it's it's really the exam. Um, and then during the race, um, we're there at the race start, just kind of making sure everything goes smoothly. And then for distance races, um, mo there's checkpoints along the way. And checkpoints are anywhere from about 25 to 50 miles apart. And so we're at each checkpoint. So as the mushers come in, we're there to assess should something have happened along the trail. Um, and then there's um, mandatory, um, mandatory checks where um, in the Bear Grease, which is 300 miles, there's two checkpoints that we have to redo the physical exams on the on the dogs to check them over and make sure things look good, making sure they're still well hydrated, making sure we're not seeing any significant injuries, um, and then making sure that they're maintaining appropriate body condition too through the race. So. I think that's fantastic. I think that's something that the general public probably needs to know a little bit more about is that these dogs are really well cared for yeah. at these yeah. events. Well, they're, and they're, and yeah. they're loved. They are. Like, mm -hmm. no, um, mushers know their dogs better than we do. Like, better than um, the big difference between working with, with mushers and then pet owners is mushers are so in tune with, with their dogs that they, they find things long before we do. So we often rely on them to kind of point things out to us that they, that they notice along the trail that we might not have noticed or seen. So, right. Yeah. So when you're caring for these dogs at these long distance races, are there certain injuries or ailments that tend to come up a little more frequently than others? Yep. So a lot of, um, so, so you, you of course can see like muscle strains um, often with the, the shoulders. Um, sometimes you might see carpus, which is the wrist, that there might be some strain or overexertion. Um, historically, um, we don't see as much now, but for a while there, um, as temperatures warmed up, as newer people started getting into it, they would, the dogs would sometimes get pushed too far. We might see what's called um, um, uh, myopathy or rhabdomyolysis, which is an inflammatory process of the muscles. Uh, but those patients, they do respond well with IV flu therapy and, and anti-inflammatory medication and, and rest going forward. Okay. But, but that's a condition that can be pretty serious if, if left unnoticed. Yep. Well, it's a good thing that those mushers know their dogs then. They're able, I'm sure, to kind of tell you if one dog is a little off or not quite no, acting absolutely. themselves. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, no, they're, they're the first to point out that. And, and, and it's to, to their own advantage, too, because um, if a dog really isn't feeling it, they're, they're really not doing their, it's, yeah, it, it's really not contributing necessarily to the team either. So. Right. Do you feel like your background and experience with sled dogs has really helped you guys push your team to the next level and really kind of keep a close eye and be able to improve their ability to do the job? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, with, without Sarah's you know, experience in this, um, I would I'd be clueless on a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, we didn't be, you know, we're kind of isolated in, in Arizona where we were and, you know, didn't really have mentors in that. Um, and again, coming in, I, I'm not even really, you know, was never really sure what these dogs are capable of, you know, um, are they, you know, are they going to just push themselves until they hurt themselves or I just, I don't know these things, um, as, as a, as a new musher. So, um, it's been invaluable having, having Sarah with, with experience, just spending time around sled dogs, you know, not, not, not having your own sled dogs, but just, you know, going to, to the races and seeing the dogs and, and spending time with them, I think is, you know, given me a lot of, of reassurance on, um, you know, that I'm doing things okay and, uh, and helps me figure out when I should back off. Mm -hmm. 
Um, cause it's, it's a hard, it's a really is a hard thing to see with, without the experience. I think that that's something that a lot of our listeners will, will feel because as we try to push our dogs to faster speeds or longer distances, you know, to that untrained eye, it sometimes can be challenging to determine when it's okay to allow them to keep going and encourage them to keep going. And when we need to make that decision that, Hey, even if they've got that heart to keep going, it might not be the smartest thing to do. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And it, and it's so individual dog dependent. Um, okay. There's some that mentally they they know, they, they recognize their comfort zone. They're like, okay, they definitely know when to back off and other dogs just won't. Other dogs will definitely keep running until they, until yeah. they well, I, yeah. you know, And, you know, I think for, for me, the, you know, what I've learned is just, you just need to spend more time with your dogs. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you need to, you know, not just show up for, for you know, for race day. Uh, you need to spend time with your dogs, mm-hmm. taking them to all sorts of, of different yeah. levels mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and, and wait in, in your first or second year of, of having, a, you know, uh, one of these dogs without experience. You know, I think that for, for a lot of people, it's too soon to really know mm-hmm. um, how far you can push your dogs. Yeah. Are there certain signs that maybe Brad, you as you started to get into it, or Sarah with your experience mm-hmm. and in the veterinary field, are there certain signs that you generally look at or signs that you recommend others look at in terms of making those decisions to kind of back off or, or not allow the dog to keep going? Uh, well, for, for me, um, with uh, and it's, again, it's so different for, for each dog. Like you just got to right. spend that time with it. Um, but like, you know, our, our first dog, Lyra, um, if you're, if you're biking with her, you know, especially when it's, when it's, you know, training and it's a little warmer, you can just start to see, she starts looking, uh, mm-hmm. a little off to the side. She starts looking at clearings. Um, and you know that she's looking for a spot that she just wants to dive off to the side and, and stop. And so there's just very, very subtle, mm-hmm. subtle things, um, that you, you, know, you just have to learn in each dog. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't see those at first, you know, we'd be going full speed and suddenly she's just off on the side rolling. Uh, mm-hmm. And I still haven't come to a stop. Yeah, it's just it's just really spending the time learning. Uh, again, for, from my perspective, it's mm-hmm. just really learning to watch the dog uh, and, and become in tune with them. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a lot of that. Um, and and I guess um, physically, like a lot of things you might look for is again if just they're if the dog themselves is starting to back off a bit, that's probably a good indication that you definitely want to watch them closely. You definitely want to keep an eye on. Um, I, I guess their, their gum color is a good sign. You, bright red gums are a sign that they're probably overheating, that we're starting to, to possibly develop heat exhaustion, um, excessive panting. Um, they're going to pant regardless, um, but if it's just excessive um, and they just can't seem to catch their breath. And, and again, or if we see any physical injury, of course, like if you're noticing, and they can be subtle, if you're noticing that their gait just isn't quite right and you're noticing just the slightest little limp or slightest little um, abnormality there, then you definitely want to back off and pause and step back and reassess. Yeah. I have one of each. I have one dog that will definitely start backing off on his own. And I have one dog that is guns ablazing until you make her stop. And it really is an individual dog thing in, in how much they're willing to give, you know, and then also an individual thing of knowing the signs for your specific dog. So again, kind of making sure that we are really watching those increase in stress signals or increase in respiration rate, Mm -hmm. gum color, like you mentioned, to make sure that we're we're making the smart decision to help our dogs. No, absolutely. And then just be mindful of common sense too with respect to temperature and weather too and humidity. Um, Cause um, th- those are definitely factors that can, that can certainly play a role. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that in 2019, you guys were part of the uh, United States uh, team at the Dryland World Championship. So talk to us a little bit about how you guys got there, because you were still pretty new in the sport, but clearly very successful in it. The selection for uh, for making the team is um, there's definitely it's definitely subjective to to an extent. Mm-hmm. We've, we've learned that we didn't have a huge amount of, of experience. You know, we were, we were trying to you know do what we could. You know, the I know a lot of what they were looking for, too, is somebody who's, you know, shown that they're willing to, to travel long distances mm-hmm. to regularly race yeah. um, and just staying engaged with the with the community as a yeah. whole. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about it's kind of a precarious time for, for a lot of, you know, dog sports is some of the, you know, the, the big team racing is is, you know, is slowing down in a lot of places. It's hard to have as many dogs have the, the, mm-hmm. the length of races. 
Well, at the same time, we've got so many excited, you know, new people excited kind of, mm-hmm. kind of coming in. Um, and again, like us, we didn't have anybody to kind of welcome us into, mm-hmm. uh, into the sports and, and show us where to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of that is they, they want to see somebody who's, um, who's going to get something mean, meaningful out of going to the, mm-hmm. the races too, uh, that we can, you know, not only compete for the USA in this, uh, but we can also bring back our experience and, uh, and, and help the, the community uh, grow uh, because of it. No, exactly. So they, yeah, so they not only look at you, at you as, a, as an athlete, which they want to make sure that you will be competitive or, or reasonably okay. competitive, um, but they do look at, um, at you and your dogs as, as a whole too. So, and to see what you can bring to the sport and bring back. Um, right. And, yeah. So no, we, I think we, it's just very lucky and fortunate for, for us and that the timing just worked out great. So um, I think we did three official races um, our first year, but uh, again, we, we did well enough um, um, as, as competitors. Um, and then I think just our enthusiasm and, and interest in bringing things back, I think was was helpful too. Yeah. yeah. At those races, were you guys strategically entering the same classes? Was was representing the U.S. kind of part of the goal or was that something that was you were just fortunate enough to kind of happen upon? It was in the back of my mind. Um, yeah. I, I think when I start again, when I started kind of crossing with, with Lyra, I was looking at my times and seeing where I was uh, on par with the world stage. I was like, okay, we're, we're right there. Like we, we can do this. And so, I, yeah. And so I think that always been in the back of my mind and then just kind of researching more, seeing, um, looking into the application process and just seeing what the, what was needed. Um, it seemed feasible and we thought, let's see what happens. And, um, so I was very excited about applying. Um, he, I, I know you almost didn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I almost didn't because you know I was like I, you know I, I know we're we're good. You know we we, right. we hold our own races, um, but you know like well not you know we're we're inexperienced. We're you know yeah. um, the the race is very much set up for a slightly different type of dog than right. we have, and yeah. so you know I knew that I wasn't going to end up on the on the podium, yeah. uh, and um, but at the same time I also was realizing that you know. The U.S. didn't have a lot of representation. Um, a lot of other countries take this far more seriously yeah. than than the U.S. has yeah. been. Um, and you know, so a lot of ways, as you know, if it was me or nobody, well, I, I wanted to show that you know yeah. there are people in the U.S. taking this uh, taking this seriously. Yeah. Um, and it was a blast. Uh, it was. Yeah. It yeah. was. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the one of the greatest things about going to the race is. Uh, just how many other teams we we met and were talking to, um, you know, we we you know hung out with Team Mexico a lot, yeah. uh, and we, you know we still we still talk to these guys on online all the mm-hmm. time, um, you know, and they, they keep trying to get us to come down to Mexico yes. for a race. We're like after COVID, we're gonna come, we totally we're gonna come are. race in yeah. Mexico. Um, how fun! Yeah, they yeah. they've got a, a you know a, a little nucleation uh, point going down there where. Yeah. They've got, you know, I, I think they had one race where they had over 70 participants yeah, um, in, you know, outside of uh, Mexico City up in the mountains. And I'm like, you know, we, we need to do this here. Like, so it, it's just exciting. It's really yeah. it's cool to see all the enthusiasm mm-hmm. for it. And how wonderful to be able to connect with other people, because at the yeah, end of the day, cool. being able to make friendships and follow along in other people's journey is only mm-hmm. going to make us better, you know, at, at our craft and what we do. So that's nice that you were able to, you know, make new friends and, and stay in touch. Who knows? Might might lead you to a trip to Mexico. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They're they so friendly. They're like, yeah. come on down. We'll, we'll show you around. Yeah. That's so. great. <laughs> now, what is... What is the preparation for a trip like that? Because that must have been, you know, pretty exhausting on you guys and the dogs. Yeah, there was, we, you know, we, we, we prepare as much as we can, but it's, it's, it's uh, uh, emotionally stressful. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the dogs, is they, they b- b- better than us. Like, yeah. I mean, again, we're sitting on the airplane and we, we hear a dog barking. We're like, don't, don't let anyone know that's our dog barking down below. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, yeah, they, they actually did well. I mean, you know, they, they travel a lot. I mean, that was the yeah. longest time they were, they've yeah. ever been locked in a crate. Yeah. Um, and so I know it was hard on them, you know, that, um, but uh, you know, they, they, they did all right. They, they didn't, they didn't come out of their crate traumatized at, mm-hmm. uh, at either end. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're pretty but resilient. One thing I didn't appreci- appreciate is just 
you know, how, how difficult it is to, to manage that much luggage. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was, there was only two of us. Um, and we, or we, we got the largest van we possibly could. I mean, this was like, so, you know, a, a three row passenger van. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I get there and I'm like, do you have anything even bigger? I mean, it was, it was yeah. for them. It's a, it's a it's big, big cargo van in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and they're looking at just two of you, like what, you know, you know, America's always about this huge thing yeah. or something. I'm like, okay, so you know, it's we're we're essentially like putting our bikes in sideways and you know, I'm, like it, you know, just tetrising things in there. And so, yeah, I I don't know how that would have worked if it was. And to the those on our team that have been through this before, that competed before, they were like uh, just wonderful resources and were really wonder uh, fantastic at at helping making sure that everybody was on the right page and everyone was like going through the right procedures to to make it work. And so yeah. definitely, they were fantastic. Um, they made arrangements, like they kept us in the loop for different um, lodging places, um, things like that, that were, were so, that was so helpful. I will say um, health certificates and that sample. Oh yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't too oh, bad. Um, so it was in Sweden. Well, for, I mean, you, you had a bit of an advantage. I, I know, I definitely had an advantage. Best. Like, no, cause it's, yeah. So definitely prep and um, anyone traveling overseas, definitely start talking to your veterinarian two days <laughs> before going. Cause there, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And, and pick, pick a vet that's done this before. Yeah. Um, cause Brooke, one of our, one of our teammates, she came so close to not, to make, not, not getting it. her house certificate back in time. Oh my um, gosh. Because yeah, it's, uh, how, how, yeah. how soon does the health certificate have to be before so, you? Yep. So it has to be, so a veterinarian has to examine the, the dog and complete the house certificate no more than 10 days before the date of travel. But, um, you, the veterinarian has to be an accredited veterinarian and then they have to send it to a, a central facility where it's endorsed by a USDA veterinarian. And that, and so it has to be overnighted there. And then they over, then they endorse it. They go through everything, making sure everything is perfect. Like all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And then they overnight it back to you. And well, they may be overnighted and they may be do it right away. You yeah. hope they do. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, so you've got a 10 day window to, to get all that taken care of, which, which is a lot when weekends are involved and things like that. And yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Now yeah. was your trip planned in a, in a way that the dogs had off time once they got there and practice yeah. time or how did that? Yeah. We, we, we arrived pretty early. Like we were like five days early. I think the race was a Wednesday, Thursday. And I think we got there like a Sunday before. So I think we got there about three days okay. before. And, so, and that was, yeah. yeah. And that was absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I was highly recommended um, just to settle in and you get a chance to explore the course too. So you can pre-ride the course before. Which yeah. That's, and that's, that's yeah. the thing is um, pre-riding the course. I I'm so glad I did yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, more, more so than, than any other race mm -hmm. um, is to really appreciate where, where to push, where to back off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you do that pre-ride with the dogs or without the dogs? Both. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the other thing is we, we wanted to arrive early enough um, that we could pre-ride with the dogs and then let them have a few rest days. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if we have them pre-riding the day before, well, then they're using up some energy for, mm -hmm. for the race. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're, we're glad that we arrived early enough to pre-ride with the dogs. Because yeah. uh, the dogs, of course, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if, you know, anybody who runs with their, their dogs is, the, you know, you do a course a few times and your dogs learn, learn yeah. the trail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they, as much as anything, know where, you know, where the hills are and everything. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're smart enough to, you know, to really know how close you're to the yeah. finish and all that too. Yeah. Now I'm, sh I'm sure along with managing energy needs, we also worry about nutrition and hydration. Mm -hmm with a, a big trip yeah. like that. And of course yeah. the high level of performance that they do for these races. Did you guys have concerns about that or how did you kind of manage that with the travel? So virtually ours did well. Um, we, we were able to, again, cause we were in, in training and race during racing, we don't really change much with their diet during race time versus training. Right. So, um, and they handled it well that we didn't have any issues with them not interested in eating or not take and ours are always have always been good drinkers and so we we haven't really had to worry about hydration with them 
Um, and the races are so short. Um, they're usually three miles or less, but they're so short. Um, and and um, if this were a different type race, it, like the endurance races, it's a totally different story. Uh-huh. But for these really short races, uh, you don't really need to change a lot during, during training. So the big thing is just kind of acclimate them to travel itself. And then if they're acclimated to travel, they, they should transition pretty pretty easily to to race day. Yes. Yeah. I, I know a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other participants were struggling. You know, they had dogs with, you know, GI issues either from for anxiety or yeah. or what whatever. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that probably that probably hurt their some of their some of their race times as mm-hmm. well. You know, I don't know if they, if them arriving earlier would have given their dogs more time to, to kind of settle recover. in. But uh, but I, I know that's that's that is something that I I didn't really worry about, and I probably will now. Even though right. we were we were really we fortunate, were, yeah. um, I, I can see that 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 can happen, and that can that can really throw things off. Yeah. I wonder if it isn't as much of an issue for the dogs that are going to events like this because they're pretty used to the competition aspect. They're used to traveling. They're used to races and changes in environment. But of course, as a dog trainer and someone who's very in tune to behavior, Mm. I always wonder about anxieties because of course that's going to impact not only the dog's mental health, but also their physical health. And both of those when they're Mm. compromised can impact performance. Do you find that it's a little less likely when you get up to, you know, that caliber of racing dog? Yep, absolutely. Because in order to be able to to be selected for that, you you had to have traveled a bit, you had to have raced a fair bit. So dogs have been would have been exposed to it. And so by that point, we you don't see a lot of dogs that really haven't seen that type of environment before. Um, but no, but um, I, I guess back to with with endurance endurance races, um, you do see that where where they can get stressed and just physiological stress um, is can be a big thing too. Where they might need um, where you might see some GI upset that they might need certain adjustments to their medications or to their their diet to kind of account for that. Um, but I think it's we definitely see that more more in endurance racing more so than than the sprint. Um, I think the big thing is just. Um, um, well, we were there. It's actually heat was the bigger issue. Um, okay. for sprint, yep. So for sprint races, I um, I have assessed with International Federation of Sled Dog Sports. Um, there's a good they, their recommendations are to potentially um, cancel or postpone races if it gets above 60 degrees. Uh-huh. And we were working on that cusp. And so that was one of the big things that we saw was a lot of dogs were having more of an issue with with the heat, and it's just trying to be mindful of that. And I know a lot of the, the three veterinarians that, that were there, they were trying, they, they did the best to kind of relay to the team captains to relay to us things that they would recommend that we watch for going forward. And yeah, and, I, and I'm of the, of the opinion that, you know, the dogs need to spend some time training at warmer temperatures, where, whereas a lot of people will say that, you know, you know never, never take them out if it's over, over 50 degrees. Um, but then you get to a race and it's it's 60 yeah. uh, and humid. And if they've never experienced that, right. um, it's it's going to be a lot. So many of those dogs at the race right. um, just looked miserable. Um, they yeah. they you know they you can tell they they were they, they were kind of blown out um, by by yeah. by how hot it was. Yeah. Um, they yeah. just weren't used to it. Yeah. Um, maybe they you know they didn't know how to back off a little bit in right. in those warmer temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to, to our conversation about really knowing your dog and knowing those signals, you know, if we are able to identify when it's too much and when our dog needs a break, it's a lot easier for us to manage our own training program. If we're aware of those signs, you know, and stop at certain distances or change our dog's speed. And and again, a lot of it too is, you know, I'm not, you know, not as worried about, you know, physically how they're, you know, they're, them being hurt by being pushed a little bit and that, but if they're being pushed and it's hot, then they're not having fun. Right. Um, and that's, you know, and the sport comes down to, I mean, we're doing it because the dogs, the dogs yeah. are having fun. Exactly. And if they didn't have fun, if they didn't have fun yesterday, why, uh, why are they going to push uh, hard today? Yeah, exactly. I also agree with the sentiment of preparing the dogs for a variety of situations, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that even from a training span- standpoint, we focus on quite a bit because we need our dogs to be adaptable and we need need them to experience a wide variety of things. Of course, safety is always on our, our mind, both physically and mentally, but 
again, in order for our dogs to be able to handle different environments, we need to make sure that we're not keeping them in a bubble and not exposing them to these things. Absolutely. So I know that you guys have a unique standpoint on your dogs in terms of training because you are big adventure seekers and that's kind of how yeah. you guys got into the sport. I too am a big believer in cross training and general adventures. I think that it really does a lot not only for the mental health of the dog and the physical health of the dog, but we can get so much out of it in terms of fitness, proprioception, you know, that really does not only enhance our relationship with the dog, but it also enhances their performance. So what kind of cross training activities do you guys enjoy? And is this something that you do all year with them or do you generally use this during off season as cross training? So we, I guess we don't really have an off season necessarily. So we, we definitely plan accordingly. We might be really, really early in the mornings during the summer, but we definitely work slowly, acclimate them. So we are able to kind of train in harness year round, but we do add a lot of cross training. Um, a lot of it might just be free, free running with us. We might just be like on a really fun, fast, technical, single track mountain bike ride. And they'll just be coming along with us. And just the, those uh, really, um, I, I guess those micro movements and the, um, can really go a long way with their proprioception, with our ability to kind of maintain their balance. And then um, just a lot of free hiking too. So um, we're fortunate in Arizona in that the trails here can be pretty technical. And so they have no choice other than to learn how to kind of navigate some more technical terrain, which really goes a long ways with, with them. And yeah, and yeah, and just taking about having fun with them, yeah. like just just building that relationship that they know that like yeah. time together outside is fun. Right. It's 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 what they what they want. Yeah. But one thing is is you know even our dogs that are siblings, how different their preferences exactly. are yeah. for for different different sports. Petra absolutely loves loves backpacking. Um, I you know she we've you know done rappelling off of uh you know. 160 foot cliffs and where our other dog Lyra just yeah. doesn't understand hiking. Like, why yeah. are we going so slow? <laughs> She's like, yeah, it's, it's um, speed demon. <laughs> yeah, which, She'll come back and like start like sassing us and be like, okay, let's go. Yeah. Well, She's I, like, that was not enough for me. Yeah, <laughs> I like to go faster. Yeah. yeah. But then, but then Lyra would love to go out and just swim in a lake all day yeah. too. So, uh, so every dog has, has her own thing. Yeah. I, I think, I think you just need to find what, what things your dog has yeah. has fun with and, and pick, pick the training that they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it's socialization too. Like we take our dogs almost everywhere. So they come with us um, whether or not we're going to a ski hill for the day and we're just like hey, coming back to the van in between skiing. We have them out, out there or to like a, a patio for a beer or to Home Depot. Like they, they come pretty much everywhere with us. And even, even yeah. yeah, just running errands, you know, I'll just often put them in the crates in the, in the van yep. to run errands with me, even if they stay in the van for the whole time, it's yep. just more time they're used to traveling. Yeah, I, I do that as well. You know, COVID is a little bit of a different story, but oftentimes I'm in the car all the time, you know, between different clients' houses and running errands. And I'm always taking the dogs, you know, weather dependent with me as well, because if I have 30 minutes of a break, I'm going to take the dogs out and we're going to mm -hmm. explore a new trail and working on their leash manners or working on attention and recall, even just being in a new environment, practicing some of those skills, not only goes a long way in terms of improving our training with them, but it also helps improve that relationship and their ability to adjust to those new environments so that when they would get to a race site or somewhere where I expect competitive performance from them, it's not a shell shocking experience, exactly. right? They, they have been trained to handle that. Yes. Yeah. So besides cross training, are there certain things that you guys look for when you are selecting a dog to be competitive or certain things that you like to see in your dogs as you're, you know, training for the competitive side of the sport? So I think there's two factors. Um, just their, their drive is probably number one. There's a saying in the sled dog world that you can't push a rope, meaning that if a dog doesn't want to run, they're not going to. And yeah. It can be very, very tough. And I don't know that that's fair. If there's a dog that simply just doesn't enjoy it, then this, it's not the right sport for them. So drive is number one. You can, and we kind of play to their, play to their preferences too, in that Lyra loves single dog, single dog monosport. She, she loves versus Petra doesn't care for that as much. Petra two dog or team is more her thing where she, oh, yeah. she's, she's, yeah. our, she's our best lead dog yeah. on, on a sled team yeah. on, on her own. She's not that excited. Right. Yeah, again, play, playing into into in their preferences. Yeah. And then physically, I think it depends on, too, whether or not you're looking for a sprint, or endurance, or open class. 
Um, physically, um, you definitely want a dog that's built to run. So there's certain breeds that might this might not be the right sport for, um, or at least at a at least at a, a, a high high level. They can still get out. They can still have fun. But I think that's my biggest thing is they have to want to do it. They they have to really enjoy it and have fun. Uh, we have one dog who she's almost 14 now. She's the first dog that I've got in my adult life, and she's a little husky Sheltie mix. And I was hoping she would take to it, and she absolutely said no. Like I tried every trick of the trick of the trade, and she not at all. So, but she loves agility, so that ended up being her thing. So, just play to their strengths, find out what yeah. your dog enjoys, and and you can and you can do do your best to make the make the right selection for dog. You yeah. you can pick a dog that's got good pedigree yeah. comes from comes from a uh, a sledding kennel. Everything can look can look right on paper. The dog can have a amazing personality. And then running in harness isn't their thing. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it just might might come down to that. Yeah. And you know, and there's been times where we've we've gotten dogs and we've just kind of made, made the decision that you know, this dog is just is isn't that into this, right? They they have other things they want to. Do. Yeah, they love biking and hiking, and mm-hmm. they're wonder you know they're they're wonderfully friendly. You know, there's some dogs that just shouldn't be pushed in these sports, right? The mm-hmm. You know that any dog that engages in these sports does it because they they want to. Yeah, I like the idea of really playing to their strong suit, and that's something that I tell my clients a lot: is not only to play to their strong suit and make sure that they're having a good time, but to also have realistic expectations about yeah. it, right? Because yeah. a lot of people that are getting into it at a recreational level and have goals of, of becoming more competitive or doing bigger distances need to have realistic expectations about what the dog in front of them is capable of doing. And I think if we have those realistic expectations, we're going to be fair to the dog and not become frustrated and even discourage the dog, right? We'll have a better mindset about what my dog can do and how I can get involved. And if becoming more competitive and moving into those sports, you know, at a higher level is something that we want to do, then we just will be more selective about the other dogs that we bring into our life. And it doesn't mean the dog we have now is not good. It just means that we need to enjoy the sport at the level that that dog can do. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's and that's that's the hard thing is you know again like for for me I wanted to go all in right from the start yeah. right I want I want a dog that could just could just start doing it from from the start that's not always reasonable I mean we mm-hmm. we got lucky with it, with the, our first puppy yeah um how how excellent it is but you know there there's certain dogs that you can do all the right things and they might not want to they might not want to do that so but yeah again I think I think the the best the best things you can do is again you know, get, get a dog that's got, you know, from, from racing lines that has, mm-hmm. uh, has the background, um, but especially have a dog that has the background in the type of sport you want to exactly. do. Um, yeah. We, we got, you know, um, at times tried to, you know, had, it was an open class dog we tried to get. Uh, we had her for a while and she's with a, a friend of mine now, but she, you know, was bred for, for sled racing. And I don't doubt she would have been excellent on a, on a large team, but she didn't have, um, you know, parents with a, you know, with a, with a dryland background. Yeah. And so, yeah, all, you know, dog running skills in, in one class don't mm-hmm. necessarily transfer to the other. Yeah. yeah I think that's an important distinction. So when you guys are kind of getting your head in the game for competition, do you find that your training plans are very structured? Like looking ahead a couple weeks, do you know exactly what your goal is for each run in terms of we're going to do sprint on Monday, distance on Thursday, or do you just kind of play it by ear based on the week? A little of both. Yeah. yeah. We, we try and just, I would say we try and just keep things consistent. Yeah. Um, and instead of like, you know, going up to the race, I think is when we, well, we weren't, we're not going to do as much hiking um, mm-hmm. or other yeah. things like that. I think as we're as we're getting closer to the race, we try and do more things that are, you know, as close to the you know yeah. to the to the racing conditions as possible. And I'm sure that your training season looks a little different in the warmer times of year. Yeah. How are you generally handling that? Are you still going out and doing sprint rides? They're just shorter. Are you focusing more on yeah. endurance? Yep, they, they tend to be quite a bit shorter. So, and yeah, so the time and then often are really early in the morning or really late at night. But yeah, definitely we do a lot more, a lot more of the free running in the summer um, than, than we do otherwise. Um, 
Yeah, in harness time in the summer, I think we keep things pretty short. It might it might be a mile. So, yeah, exactly. Um, it could be as short know, as a mile. Um, but you know, just so they're still doing it. Yeah. And just kind of keep that enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And then using more of your free running to get them out and keep them moving without yeah. the added work and yeah. strain on the body that the harness and pulling will put. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because yeah, because free running, like in 80 degrees, like they're comfortable going all day long with us. Uh, free running versus harness again like a mile in like 65 70 degrees a mile is probably about all we will do so. yeah i think a lot of people don't understand maybe who are just getting into it don't understand how much more work and effort is put in when the dog is in harness versus free running you know and and obviously each dog is different and we have to look at temperature and humidity combined but free running can often still be an, a good option to keep mm -hmm. their cardio and endurance up yeah. without putting that extra strain on them. Yeah. And, and again, just, it's just more time that they're around a bicycle having mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of breaks it up. And so they, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So for those are, who are just getting started in their journey and maybe looking to attend their next race, um, you know, this next season, do you have any tips for them or things that you wish you would have known when you got started? Um, I, I would say a bit, a big tip, you know, a big thing is find somebody else to run with. Mm -hmm. uh, and for a lot of people, it's, you're not going to find someone in your city um, mm -hmm. for, for a lot of things, right? There's, there's still a lot of parts of the country where, where, where new athletes are spread pretty thin. Mm -hmm. One thing that I would very, very highly encourage is, you know, if, if the nearest person to you is, you know, is three hours away, well, do, do a weekend, yeah, do, yeah. do a weekend trip, right? If it's, um, you know, have, spend some time running around other dogs and other people, you know, even if, even if it's, you know, a lot of driving for a, you know, a 20 minute run, yeah. I think that is, that's invaluable to have mm -hmm. that, have that experience. Yeah. Which again, hopefully, as we get more people into the sport, that's that's going to get that's going to get easier. Uh, and it's yeah, COVID, hopefully, you know, hopefully that three-hour drive will only become an hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. oh, yeah. man, a, an hour to go. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say yeah. Spend, spend time with other other people and and other dogs. Mm -hmm. You know, let's it not only gives your dog experience around it, but you can mm -hmm. see how other people are doing their mm -hmm. things. Right, you can ride next to other people and watch how they're interacting with yeah. their dogs. And, uh, and and pick up on on that experience too, yeah. and then again just just spend as much time with your dog learning to read each other as you can. Yeah, I think my tip would be to don't be afraid to ask questions. Yes, a lot of people coming into it, even entering their first rate race, might be worried. But you know, I I think it's always important for people to remember that no matter how far up you are in the sport, asking questions is you know standard. It's important because nobody yeah. knows everything and well, if we ask questions you know then we're only increasing our likelihood of success but yeah and that the other thing is um don't don't take the answer to any question uh that you get even from somebody really experienced don't take that answer as how things have to be done right. um one of my favorite examples is I've, I've talked to a lot of racers that talk about oh when you're when you're training your dogs train them at you know for a three mile race train them at four miles um, so that when you do a three mile race, they're going to have lots of energy for a strong finish. And then I talked to other people like, oh, no, no, train only at two miles so you can train them faster and they can just run that mm -hmm. last mile faster. And both people are winning with their dogs. Right. So they've got completely yeah. contradictory yeah. strategies. Yeah. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the thing to be aware of is that get ideas from people, but realize that what you do with your own dog has to be a custom fit for them exactly. and for you. Yeah. In my opinion, I think that's one of the hardest things about training. And one of the coolest things about training yeah. is that there's no cookie cutter solution mm -hmm. and that what works for one person might not work for you. And it's just because every dog is unique. So mm -hmm. I agree that ask questions, but understand that if that doesn't work for you, there's always another option. There's always something else that we can try. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, and then recognize it's an addictive sport. So, and it, yeah, so it's a very slippery slope. So once you get started, it, yes. Um, yeah. And the, and the sled dog world, it's, there's such good camaraderie. Like they, 
uh, it's just such a good group to be around. Like people, it's even as elite competitions, people are just very welcoming, very friendly, which isn't always the case in other sports. And so that that's one of the things I do love about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just how friendly, how friendly of an environment it is. And yeah, yeah, I would agree with that, too. A very social sport, a very welcoming sport. You know, again, I, you know, the, the the woman that beat me at uh, at the race out uh, out here in Arizona, you know, I wanted to win that race, but I was happy for her yeah. to win that race too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will say one more thing that uh, really gets overlooked in uh, in bike touring is the equipment. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I I used to be a bicycle mechanic all through high school and college, and and some years beyond. Continued working part time as a bicycle mechanic, um, and I bring like my full kit and setup to every race. Uh, and I've never been to a race where I didn't have to do like some serious repair on someone's bike mm -hmm. where, you know, their wheels aren't secured right or brakes are are locked up or people are on bikes that you know aren't the right fit for them. Financially, you know, people can only afford so much. I mean, don't people don't need to go out and buy a, you know, a high end racing bike. But I, I think it's really important that people, you know, go to a shop and have a conversation with a mechanic to make sure their bike is safe um, and that the. Not, you know, set up well, but also an appropriate bike for the kind of mm -hmm. riding they're doing. Yeah. Um, a bicycle that is uh, is easy to pedal around the neighborhood uh, and comfortable to ride around the neighborhood can slide out so easily uh, in uh, in a turn mm -hmm. on the trail. And so I think, yeah, a lot of people really need to, to invest some time into uh, learning equipment and then uh, building their own bike skills. Exactly. There's been plenty of times where I've had things go completely wrong. My dog's over here. My handlebars are pointing that way. And I still recover and and, and keep going um, just because of the time that I spent biking before mm -hmm. I got into yeah. before I got into these sports. Yeah, I think I, anybody who's wanting to do this, you you need to be comfortable riding on your own um, at several levels above whatever course you're racing exactly. on with your dog. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree to both of those working on human mechanics on the bike because it only gets harder to ride the bike when the dog's in front pulling and then yeah. having some general sense for some repairs. And I'll be totally honest, I'm one of those people that I do not have a ton of bike repair skills, but over the last year, that's something that my husband and I have really been putting a lot of effort into. And we've done a lot of our own repairs and maintenance on the bikes this year. And it's hard when you first start, just like any new skill, but yeah. the more you do it, the easier it gets. And there's so many helpful blogs and, you know, video tutorials you can watch on YouTube that will really walk you through the whole process. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing too is, yeah, I, I, I've never found a bike bicycle shop that you couldn't just walk your bike in and ask, is my bike safe? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Every, every shop I've been to, they'll, they'll tell you if your bike is safe or not without charging you a, a penny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, make, make use of that, of that resource. Absolutely. Brad and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to share this. You guys have quite a unique and inspiring start in the sport. And I think it's wonderful for people to see that you don't have to grow up in the sport in order to do well and succeed in it. Absolutely. Thank you. To connect with Brad and Sarah Cassing, you can follow them on their Facebook groups, Bike Joring Western USA, bike during Eastern USA, and dark sky racing kennels. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.